Great. Well, we're going to turn now to the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you haven't, don't worry. The words are going to come up on the screen. And we're going to read as we come to the end of our series from the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to the end of the book. Um, And this is Paul writing to his good friend Titus. Paul has left Titus with a job to do in Crete. Uh, And he's telling him how he should establish good churches there. So let's read together. So Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, Titus. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what's good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. And as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what's good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. And then let's say these last words together. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we've already thought that you are the God who speaks to us. So Father, we are listening. Holy Spirit, would you speak into our lives, Lord, bringing encouragement where that's needed, comfort where that's needed, hope for those in despair, bringing challenge for some of us, Lord, and And Lord, bring your sense of who you are and your greatness, Lord God. Please speak, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.
We live in a beautiful city, a city that we love. Birmingham is an amazing city, uh, and having moved to Birmingham in the last few years, uh, I can testify to that. Uh, it is a city, if we can have this PowerPoint on, brilliant. It's a city in which, uh, if you read reports and things like that, it is one of the best places to live in the country. Uh, it is also on the destination list of one of the top 10 cities in the world to visit. Uh, it is one of those places that we live here. We take for granted what is here, but there is much to be thankful for. But it raises a question for us. If Birmingham is this city, which is both beautiful and broken, what kind of church does Birmingham need? So that it might be even more beautiful. Or to make it even more local, what kind of church does Bourneville need? Because here in Titus, Paul has left Titus in a beautiful place, not Birmingham, but Crete. You may well say, Crete is more Birmingham than beautiful, uh, more beautiful than Birmingham. But he's left Titus in this place to establish churches for the sake of Crete, for the glory of God. And so in, these, in this book, we have had a little insight into what the great Paul thinks is important for churches to be involved with. And so for us involved in a church, longing for this beautiful city of Birmingham to be even more beautiful, longing for this area of Bourneville to find people coming to know Christ, there's some insights in here about what kind of church we might be. And I think there's four key things for us as a church and, of course, for us who are part of this church. And if you're here for the first time, if you're here just visiting, is a little insight into what we're trying to do here in Bourneville here in Birmingham. And the first is by way of a story. I wonder if you, any of you have heard the Greek myth of Sisyphus. Put your hands if you've heard the Greek myth of Sisyphus. It is one of the most depressing stories that form our backdrop. Sisyphus was a brilliant man who sometimes played tricks in Greek mythology on the gods to get what he wanted. And finally, the gods condemned him to eternal hard labor. And what that labor involved was him rolling a boulder uphill constantly. Only the further he got, the closer he got to the top, the steeper it went. And then the boulder would roll all the way back down to the bottom. And he'd have to go back down and start all over again. Unrewarding, repetitive, futile labor. And for some of us, we may feel that's what our jobs are like, but I can guarantee across Birmingham, there are many, many, many people for whom life feels like that, constantly trying to do things better, trying to improve, trying to get to the top, and then the boulder comes falling back down, and they have to start all over again. Well, in contrast to this, Paul urges Titus to establish churches who are filled with people who live grace-changed lives. Not lives in which they strive, constantly pushing themselves forward, but lives full of freedom. Let me read again the first verse that we read. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. 
You see, most people's view of the church, most people's view of religion is like Sisyphus. If only we can better ourselves. If only we can push ourselves forward. And it's hard sometimes, but if we can push ourselves forward, if we can be better citizens, if we can be better people, then that is what religion is all about. And the truth is that leads to one of two things. For those people who are successful, who do achieve change in their lives, who do better themselves, well, it means that they can look down on those other people who don't. They're not as successful as me. And for those of us who can't change ourselves and we strive to be different, we strive to be better, it keeps on resulting in self-disgust because we can't do it. Here, says Paul, is a message of hope that is neither self-disgust or self-love. Why? Because change is possible. Do you see that? But change is possible through not hard effort, but through something else completely. Read it again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. He's talking about Jesus there. Jesus appeared. Grace of God. And what does that grace do? What does Jesus do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. In other words, how do we be different people? How do we be changed people? Is it through our hard labor, like pushing a boulder? No, it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no. The moment we separate God's grace in Jesus and make it all about what we do, we become like Sisyphus. And we are called to be a church modeling a different way. People who live grace-changed lives. Who know we will keep messing up. Who know we do get it wrong. But who know there's always grace. Who never look at ourselves as being special or amazing or clever or better than anyone else. But never look at ourselves as being less or worse than anyone else. We're simply sinners saved by grace. Changed by Christ. So a church of people who live grace-changed lives. But there's a second bit here for us. What kind of church do we want to be? We live in a culture, don't we, of cynicism. A culture in which our media is cynical of every and any leader, every and any politician, every and any success story. Just flip your eyes to any news story, and depending on your political agenda, the moment it mentions one particular angle, you'll think this, and the moment it mentions another, you'll think this. And you read any paper, and you can almost guarantee their agenda and their angle in it. Britain is a society, sadly, in which we like to cut successful people down, and we like to do each other down. Not so, says Paul, for the church. He calls the church to be a church of people who live respectful lives. And we don't often talk about this in church. Because if you're anything like me, I've grown up in a context where I want to be radical for Christ. I want to be a person that changes society and I want to make a difference. And therefore, I will not respect those other people. Because it's all about Jesus. And yet, look at what Paul says. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever's good, to slander no one. 
to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone. Let me illustrate this. My wife, Claire, is a big Take That fan. She won't mind me mentioning it. Now, for many years, this has been a big thing in our house because I don't really like Take That. But if I'm honest, the reason I don't really like Take That is because I know I'm not supposed to like Take That. Because the kind of music I like look down on people like Take That. It's a bit poppy. But if I'm honest, and Claire puts Take That on, I think to myself, this is all right, this. So much so that I've been to see them a couple of times. <laughs> In other words, I'm influenced by what I think I should think, rather than by what I think. Shock, horror. We live in a society, don't we, in which we set ourselves up by what we're against, what we don't like, whereas Paul urges Christians to live peaceable, considerate, gentle lives. And this has brought home to me recently where I was chatting to somebody who's an older Christian friend, and I was talking about somebody we both knew who had a significant leadership position nothing to do with Birmingham, uh, and I said a comment that was slightly critical of this person to this other person. And her reaction cut me down in a really generous and gentle way. She said, yeah, but he's just trying to be helpful, isn't he? There was I, critical, 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 and she said, yeah, he was just trying his best. And in that moment, it did two things. One, it made me think higher of the other person, but actually made me think higher of her because she wasn't joining in my games. She was living gentle, peaceable, considerate lives. So we're a church full of grace-filled people, grace-changed people. We're a church full of respectful people, respecting our leaders and praying for them. When was the last time you prayed for the politicians you don't like? Good question. There's a third thing here, though. And the third thing is highlighted by a couple of photos. I love this photo. I think this was taken at the Boston Marathon either last year or the year before. I love it because there's all these people taking photos on their phones and this older lady loving, just soaking in the mood. Or this brilliant picture that's been doing the rounds on Twitter. There in front of a great master painting on our phones. Missing what is really important because we're so focused on something else. And Paul urges the church, would urge us in Bourneville, would urge us in, in Birmingham to be a church of people who aren't distracted. Now, I don't think he'd be particularly as interested in phones. He may be, might be quite useful, whatever. But the distraction he's talking about is something altogether very different. Because he talks from verse 3 onwards of the kind of people they were, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, all kinds of passions and so on and so on. But then talks about when the kindness and love of God appeared, when Jesus came and died for our sin and rose up from the grave, shattering our greatest enemy. When all that happened, he says, what? 
This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things. What he means is, don't get distracted on anything else but the fact that the kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared. Don't get distracted on all sorts of things and forget the main thing. As the old saying goes, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus. And as I was preparing for this, it made me ask a question of myself. And let me ask it for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, when was the last time you actually spoke to somebody about Jesus? Not church, not God. Jesus. It really encouraged me the other, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, a couple of months ago, actually, now. Um, somebody said they had joined Riverside because Riverside, and I quote, spoke more about Jesus than other churches they had been in. Amazing. And he makes it very clear in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Don't get distracted. It's all about Jesus, says Paul. Jesus. Am I, are we, are you known as somebody who loves Jesus? Or am I known as somebody who goes to church? I don't know if you know, there's been some research done in the UK very, very recently. Uh, some really interesting research called Talking Jesus, where they've done some uh, surveys about different people, people who are Christians, people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, and the results are quite fascinating. Let me read you some of the statistics. 57% of people in England identify themselves as Christians. 9% of those would call themselves practicing Christians. Uh, 40% of people... Uh, don't realize that Jesus was a real person who actually lived. So two-fifths of our population. One in four, that's a quarter of 18 to 35-year-olds, think that Jesus was a fictional character. 66% of practicing Christians have talked about Jesus to someone who isn't a Christian in the past month. Two-thirds, that's pretty good. 44% of practicing Christians credit their friends for introducing them to Jesus. 36% of practicing Christians say that talking to a Christian about Jesus was important for them in coming to their faith. And summarized with this statement, one in five of the people we know and speak to about our faith are open to Jesus, they would say. All of that means this. We live in a society in which so many people know nothing of Jesus. And yet a good chunk of them, one in five of our friends, would be up for a conversation about Jesus and exploring more. And for many, many of us, it was those conversations that led to us becoming followers of Christ. You don't have to do the math to say, let's not be a church that gets distracted on all sorts of good things. And forget Jesus. And the same goes for my life and your life. Which is why, in a sense, we're doing this thing about the referendum, why we're doing this joint gathering, is because we want to be a place that says, don't forget Jesus. <laughs> so let's be a church full of grace-changed people. Let's be a church full of respectful people. Let's be a church of people who aren't distracted by all sorts of interesting discussions and debates and focuses and forget Jesus. But finally... Finally, this image. 
I love this picture of a sort of cubist representation of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And I love the story in the Gospels where Jesus stoops to serve that great enactment of modeling to us what it means to be Christians in society. We live in a culture of strength and success, don't we? Where just this weekend we have the honors list, where we celebrate those who are successful. And yet Jesus says, if you want to be great, you've got to be small. And it's interesting, isn't it? That if you, it's the Queen's 90th, as you'll have known. And she once said these words. The great leader, the one who has been still ongoing when through 12 presidents, 12 prime ministers, endless coups, she keeps on going. A great leader, respected by all, whose popularity is still as high as ever, said these words. History teaches us we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness and our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher or a general, important as they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. If we want to be great, it's not about us. It's about him. And therefore, out of that, we are a church of people then who are good for society, just the same as the queen has done good. You see, in those last verses, as we were reading all those lists of names, Paul says this, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. And that phrase, doing what is good, is the summary of Titus' letter. Chapter 1, verse 8, talking about leaders, they must be hospitable who love what is good. Chapter 2, verse 3, talking about older women to be reverent and to teach what is good. Talking about other people, chapter 2, verse 7, in everything set them an example by doing what's good. Chapter 2, verse 14, talking about Jesus who gave himself for us to purify for himself a people eager to do what's good. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers, to be ready to do whatever is good. Chapter 3, verse 8, I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what's good. And this last verse, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what's good. As we've said before, we are called to be a church of do-gooders who are good for Birmingham, who are good for Bourneville. I'll close with two stories. Every now and again, something happens in your life that impacts you and doesn't go away. And I've mentioned it before, but it's still there in my head. Several years ago, I had the experience uh, of doing some work in Senegal, in West Africa there. Uh, I was teaching people, and it was a good experience, all that sort of stuff. But as I was there one day, we were driving around, and we were parked by a shop. And there was I, this kind of rich white guy. And as is common, while the others were in the shop, what happened is lots of people came to the window of the car and stood there holding their hands out. And this older lady came up to the window of my, where I was sat. I was sat here, she came up to my window. And she literally stood, the window was there, face like that. And just put her hands out and stared right into my eyes. I'd been told 
not to give anything. So what did I do? I didn't give anything. And I can still see her eyes. I know it wouldn't have been appropriate and you'd had loads of people and all this sort of stuff. But I turned my head like this. And then I turned it back and she was still there looking at me. As we drove away, I thought to myself, did you do good there, Tim? We're called to be a church of people who do good. And in contrast to my selfish example, a well-known story that I've said before, but is a beautiful story of selfless people doing good for society, was mentioned when a tragic event happened in America in 2006. Do you remember it? The story began to appear on the news, becoming clear that several young children had been shot and killed in a school in Pennsylvania. What made it even more tragic than the normal tragedy of such things was that the killer, a man named Charles Roberts, had walked into an Amish school, locked the doors, killing five young girls and many others as well. A deep tragedy for the community that prided itself on living peaceable lives. But what was even more shocking than the tragedy was the response from the Amish community, which lived out doing what is good. Because what happened for this Amish community was they wanted to help the grieving widow of the gunman who then killed himself. So they set up a fund from the community to help his widow. And even more than that, at the gunman's funeral, with all the paparazzi there, the Amish community, including parents of the girls that were killed, stood around the church in a big ring with their backs to the camera looking at the church so that the woman and her family could grieve in peace. They were protecting her from this world. Friends, we are called to be the kind of people that do good because Christ has done good for us. May we be people who know it's not in our own strength, it's all an act of grace, who enables us to live respectful lives for those we disagree with, to be people who focus on Christ so much so that it means we are doing good wherever we go with whoever we meet.